Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott have been booted from the caucus of the Liberal Party. Bill 66 passed yesterday at Queen's Park, and it lightens regulations around overtime averaging. Also, a new report says that the new low-income tax credit the uh, Ford government is offering will actually add to the deficit, and it doesn't help workers as much as the $15 minimum wage would have. And families are reacting to the announcement that the Ontario government may not consult parents of children with autism as of May 1st. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We've got our own controversies going on in Ottawa these days. Uh, and the last chapter in this uh, was yesterday, of course, when uh, the Prime Minister announced that uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and uh, the other uh, individual, of course, uh, that has been uh, involved in this, Jane Philpott, uh, have been kicked out of the Liberal caucus. And, uh, well, apparently the Prime Minister had a, a discussion with his caucus members, and uh, he was pretty adamant. The trust that previously existed between these two individuals and our team has been broken. Whether it's taping conversations without consent or repeatedly expressing a lack of confidence in our government and in me personally as leader. And on and on it goes. Uh, Of course, they have both responded as you might have expected they would. They've both been very outspoken and vocal through this whole process. So what's next? Uh, joining us to talk about this is David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News, who joins us from Ottawa. David, how are you doing this morning? Uh, pretty good. Pretty busy day uh, here on Parliament Hill uh, yesterday, and it's going to be, I think, just as busy today. Liberals, as they do every Wednesday morning, have their regular national caucus session. But, you know, as you've said, they'll need two fewer seats uh, at that uh, caucus this morning. And then, here's what's interesting, is there's a group on Parliament Hill today called Daughters of the Vote. Okay, this is an annual group that comes to Parliament Hill, 300 and 400 uh, college-age women who are sponsored by a group called Equal Voice. Equal Voice is all about getting women more involved in politics. They're going to be in the House of Commons, sort of doing a mock session. I've covered this event in other years. It's quite a symbol to see, 338 women occupying the House of Commons. And Justin Trudeau is going to speak to this group, and he's going to have to explain how Jody Wilson-Raybould, Jane Philpott got kicked out, Selena Cesar Chavan, another woman, left over Trudeau's leadership style, and Leona Alislev, another elected liberal, crossed the floor to sit as the Conservatives. One, two, three, four women. That's not a coincidence on when it comes to gender. And I can tell you we're seeing some social media activity from these participants and daughters of the vote. Trudeau has a bit of a woman problem, and he's the self-described feminist, and uh, these daughters of the vote, these women, 300, they held a reception earlier this week where they could meet some female liberal MPs. Jody Wilson-Raybould was there, and Bill, the lineup was out the door in front of Wilson-Raybould. All these women wanted to have their picture taken with her, and I think that says something about who they believe in this he said, she said affair. Well, exactly. And the clip we just played of the Prime Minister there, they kept talking about lack of trust or an erosion of trust. That seems to be a common theme over the last few weeks up there, David. Absolutely. And, and Liberal MPs were pretty upset. The last straw being this tape that we were talking about last week. This is the audio tape that Wilson-Raybould made uh, of a phone conversation she had last December with the clerk of the Privy Council, Michael Warnick. He did not know that that phone conversation was being taped, and Wilson-Raybould released it last week in support of her allegations that there was inappropriate pressure brought to bear on her by the Prime Minister for her to intervene in favor of SNC-Lavalin in this criminal court case. So that's why she did, she put this tape on the record. She recognized it was an extraordinary thing to do. Well, the Prime Minister yesterday called it an unconscionable thing to do. So 
that was the last straw on Wilson-Raybould. As far as Philpot goes, uh, one MP told me yesterday, this is John McKay, he's the an MP uh, for uh, scarborough Guildwood in Toronto, McKay said, you know, the caucus felt these two were joined at the hip. And Phil Pott had given an interview to McLean's magazine in which she had said, among other things, there's more to this story. There's more to come. And liberals took that as a threat. They felt that that Wilson, Raybould, and Phil Pott, the two of them, were going to continue to release evidence, to release damning uh, uh, anecdotes that were going to continue to hurt the liberal brand, hurt the party, and hurt the prime minister personally. That was the end of that. You're on the team or you're not, and they called for uh, Prime Minister pull the trigger, and that's what he did yesterday. But listen, I, I know that she has a, a lot of friends within the caucus, a lot of supporters within the caucus. Just how divided is that Liberal caucus? They, they're trying to put on a brave face here, right, David, and I'm, I'm not too sure too, too many people are buying it. They put on a pretty united show of support yesterday. They were all applauding for the Prime Minister at this speech he gave. I think in the Liberal caucus... It is definitely not unanimous, but I think most of them, actually probably a great majority, supported getting rid of Wilson-Raybould. Phil Pott's a bit of a different matter. I think there was some sympathy towards her, um, but at the end of the day, they sort of went along that, you know, both have to go. So as I said, there's, there's a unity problem potentially within the Liberal caucus, less so, I think, than the unity problem that Trudeau has with the whole party. I mentioned women. Female supporters were a big component of how Trudeau built that coalition to win in 2015. And I've talked to the women who were, who were being counted on for uh, to, uh, volunteers later on this year, the women who might be counted on to give some of their money. They're being asked right now by Liberal HQ, can you help out again? We need you back on the team again. And a lot of them are saying, no, I, I just I feel uncomfortable. I'm not happy how this all worked out. And that can make a, that can play a factor in an election year. Certainly the Conservatives and the NDP and most of all the Greens are going to just keep holding this over the Liberals' heads saying this guy cannot play nice with women. So that's one component. Yesterday we also saw the release of these, a bunch of new emails between Wilson Raybould and Gerald Butts, the former principal secretary to Trudeau. And among them is a warning from Jody Wilson Raybould saying, you get, if you boot me out of caucus, you're going to have a whole big problem with the country's indigenous communities and indigenous leaders. She, of course, is an indigenous leader herself. And that's another uh, vote component that Trudeau has now put at risk. So he's got a problem with women, problem with indigenous communities. And remember, this this is the feminist PM who is all about reconciliation. Yeah, and you've had a couple of uh, B.C. indigenous leaders already sp speak out about this. One yesterday said, just said that, okay, the prime minister's toast now. And this was after, of course, he booted the two of them out of there. Uh, but I understand where they're coming from. I don't necessarily agree with what they've done here, David, the caucus, that is, and the prime minister. But how they, they've essentially turned Wilson-Raybould into a martyr. And uh, and if that think there was any think or thought process here that this was going to make this whole issue go away, uh, I don't see that happening. I think in some question, in some areas, yes, I think turning her into a martyr, and I think Wilson-Raybould sort of understands that, the way she's conducted herself and sort of set things up, and uh, she had a, she released a two-page letter yesterday. It wasn't an apology. It wasn't a statement of confidence in the PM. It was, it was more along the lines of a call to arms for those liberals like her who were first time elected in 2015. So there will be a lot of people out there who will read that and go, yeah, that's what I believe in. Why couldn't Trudeau live up to that? So there is a sense that she could be a martyr. That said, 
again, it's there, there's a liberal unity problem. There's there are certainly lots of people like Wayne Easter, a liberal MP for 25, 30 years, old school guy from PEI. And, you know, he he was this week was telling reporters, you know, she should have been gone long ago. I don't know what we're keeping around. Boot her out. Um, and there was, you know, th- there's definitely that feeling in the caucus. So. So the caucus, as I say, is a little bit split, and there's competing visions of what it means to be a liberal. Jody Wilson-Raybould and Jane Philpott's vision of what it means to be what it means to be a liberal, and then some old hard-knuckle politicians saying, you know, you got to be on the team. You can't be you can't be uh, shooting inside the tent. Is there a, a kind of a mindset here, David, uh, within that caucus of what it could have should have that maybe they should have jumped on this issue a lot sooner than they did instead of letting it fester? Oh boy, yeah. Uh, I think so, and you know, if you, if you or I were in that caucus, I, you know, probably would have said, yes, it's time they have to be moved. But at the same breath, I'd say, and by the way, PM, you blew it so big time on this file. And if there isn't a house cleaning inside your own office from the comm standpoint, the issues management standpoint, and what on earth were you doing to begin with, trying to interfere in an independent prosecution of SNC Lavalin? And that issue, Bill, is still hot. That court case is still proceeding. There's a new justice minister, David Lametti from Montreal. Presumably the PM still feels the same way. He wants this done. As we heard in this phone call last week, quote, the PM is going to get it done one way or the other. Well, he's done it. He's fired the Justice Minister, Move Wilson-Raybould out of the way. What's David Lametti going to do now? Is he going to do the PM's bidding and interfere in a criminal prosecution? That is a live, hot question. I can't imagine that a lot of liberals are excited about that prospect should happen. Well, exactly, because what Melaminetti actually said, and I think the the Prime Minister said the same sort of thing, that no Attorney General decision is final, uh, which tells me that they're going to try to massage this. And no attorney general has ever interfered in an independent prosecutor's uh, decision. They've let the independent prosecutor make those decisions. That's the way it ought to, ought to work. Uh, at the provincial level, it's the provincial prosecution. The, the solicitor general or attorney general of Ontario doesn't get involved. And for good reason. We don't want politicians deciding which cases are going to go to court and which cases are not. But in this case, the prime minister seems to think this should this case with SNC-Lavalin should not go to court, that there should be some penalty paid by SNC-Lavalin, but that they should be preserved to keep bidding on federal contracts. Uh, the case has not been made by the federal government that there would be jobs lost. All we have is SNC-Lavalin with vague warnings that that might happen. But uh, we sent our Abigail Beeman to Port Elgin, Ontario, just down the road. I saw that. Uh, beautiful yeah. Port Elgin. Yeah, great piece. And SNC-Lavalin there, the people there are saying no jobs at risk. Um, it's up to the, I think, Trudeau to, you know, get an independent assessment of what, if any, economic harm could happen. And then we can start talking about a deferred prosecution agreement. Which, by the way, is still on the horizon for anybody who thinks this thing is just going to fade away. That SNC-Lavalin aspect of this hasn't even been dealt with yet. Nope, it's still, a, as I say, it's a very hot issue, and I expect to see both the Conservatives and New Democrats sort of picking up that ball uh, in the days ahead. David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. David, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for this today. No problem. Have a great morning, Bill. Cheers. You too. And, uh, well, he's got to get back there because it's a crazy day today. These, uh, these stories that we've been covering here, of course, are changing almost by the moment. And uh, we'll keep you abreast of what's going on with some of the latest developments. Uh, because uh, as both uh, the deposed and now MPs have said, uh, they're not finished talking. And there's more to the story. That seemed to be the essence of uh, the letters that both of them sent out yesterday after they were removed from caucus. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. There are a couple of stories out of Queen's Park that I, I, I'm going to kind of meld together here because I want to, they, they in a way they are kind of connected. 
uh, because it has to do with uh, the uh, Ford government's uh, fiscal policies. Uh, one of them is uh, Bill 66, which passed yesterday at Queen's Park, and uh, it lightens the regulations around overtime averaging. Uh, it's a little complicated explanation, but the bottom line here is that uh, a lot of people that work overtime are probably going to get less money for it now than they did before because uh, the uh, Ford government's lifted some restrictions. The other is a, a report that came out which uh, validates what we've been saying and what many other groups have been saying for the longest time right now, that uh, that low-income tax credit uh, that uh, the Ford government is offering right now in no way comes close uh, to having the same kind of positive impact that a, a raise in the minimum wage up to 15 bucks an hour would have had. Uh, of course, the finance minister, Vic Fidelli, is uh, already saying that, poo-hooing the report. Joining us to talk about this, though, is Pam Fresh, who is the coordinator of the Ontario Fight for 15 campaign. Uh, Pam, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you with us here today. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. Oh, the Fight for 15, I'm going to set aside for just a second. I want to deal with that report. Now, that should come as no surprise to you, but give me your, give me your read on what you hear about this Bill 66, about basically uh, lifting the restrictions and uh, and making it much more difficult for people that are working overtime uh, to actually get paid that hourly wage, as they have been doing for the last number of years. Yes, it's it's shocking. You know, once again, you know, whenever given a choice, Premier Ford seems to side with corporations uh, instead of with workers, but in this case, he's siding with the, some of the worst employers who have not been paying overtime, who have been shirking their obligations under the law, and now he's basically said it's open season. So under Bill 66, uh, there's no longer Ministry of Labor consent required before employers ask workers to work in excess of 48 hours a week, and they're allowed to average the number of hours that they work over a four-week period which essentially means an end to overtime pay in the province and asking workers to do double the work for less money. Well, what bothers me about this, and I'm sure it's going to irritate an awful lot of workers, Pam, is, as you mentioned, this is a a practice that had gone on that a lot of people were very concerned about. Uh, It wasn't illegal necessarily, but it was certainly on the verge of. And the government's looked at this and said, yeah, you know what, that's good. Let's all do that now. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The irony is that they claim it was merely a rubber stamp, but the strict criteria that the Ministry of Labor set out to grant permission to employers who do ask excessive hours of work from their employees uh, meant that only those employers that were prepared to follow the regulations would actually apply. So, of course, that means that most of them would be approved. Under the new scenario, basically because there's no permission required now, any employer under the sun can go ahead and ask workers uh, to engage in excessive hours of work with no overtime. And plus, because this government has not only reduced proactive enforcement of the standard labor laws, it means that the uh, that employers are going to have free reign, even if they're violating the four-week averaging. And finally, this government has also reduced the fines for employers who break the law. So as I say, it's not just siding with corporations over workers, it's literally giving a green light to the worst employer practices in the province in order to announce open season on ordinary, hardworking employees in this province. And as we've talked about with members, uh, and we've talked with union members, but also with labor experts, uh, there's, a, there's a feeling, and, and I'm, this probably just even further validates this, Pam, that we're taking a giant leap backwards when it comes to the rights of workers. Absolutely. It's it's really shocking. I think open for business in Ontario under Mr. Ford is uh, open season on workers, and it's a real step back. It's going to harm our communities. It's going to harm our economy, actually, because as workers are forced to work harder for less, there's less money in the economy and so forth. Plus, with this whole business of 
uh, hours averaging over four weeks, it means workers are going to be subjected to wildly fluctuating hours. So it could be, you know, 40 hours, or sorry, 50 or 60 hours one week and then 20 or 30 hours the next as employers try to avoid uh, running up against the limits of the four-week overtime. So this is a disaster. It's an absolute disaster for Ontarians. And I should also mention that the other thing that Bill 66 does is it actually agreements for many construction workers who are employed in the public sector. This is absolutely shocking. It, from one day, workers had protection of a decent collective agreement with decent wages, etc., to the next day having them essentially neutralized. So again, this government is not for the people, it's for the, the bosses and for the CEOs. Well, the the pattern that I see developing here is is, is simply this. Like, and, and I'm I'm trying to find balance. I think we all want to see balance here in this province. We need a strong economy, and that means, of course, businesses have to thrive. And hopefully, if they thrive, they're going to hire more people. And you'd like to think maybe even pay them a decent wage. Uh, we're not there yet, but it just seems as if what Ford has done is every time he sits down with some business group and they say, you know what, this has been a bit of a problem for us. Oh, okay, we'll get rid of that. You know, he was more than willing to give up the, the green belt. You know, because some developers said they like to build there. He had to back off that because of the outcry that everybody gave as a result of that. But he's, yeah, every little thing now that, that gets brought up here, and in this case, it's 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 this, uh, this whole idea about overtime. People work more money. Sometimes they do that because they need the money. It's not because they want to buy an extra boat or something. It's so they can pay the rent. Uh, so they, they'll take that overtime shift and pay get time, time and a half. That's basically a, a, a right that's been taken away from workers now. A hundred percent. And that's, you know, that's exactly it. Workers uh, often would say yes, because wages are so low, people will say, yes, I need the hours, I need the overtime hours to make ends meet. But now they're going to get the overtime without any overtime premium pay for that. And just as a reminder, the reason that overtime pay actually exists is that it's, it's supposed to be an incentive to share work fairly, to share paid work fairly over the, over the course of the labor force so that some workers are not being worked to death and other workers are not getting enough hours. That's what this is all about. And the fact that this government has basically deregulated it entirely really does mean that it's, it, it's going to harm workers, it's going to harm their families, it's going to harm our communities uh, as people try to cope with. And, and the thing is, it's supposed to be uh, based on permission from workers themselves, but we all know there's no democracy in a workplace. If you don't do what the employer asks, you're either out the door or you suffer other kinds of reprisals. So as you say, this just seems to be willy-nilly, whatever some business owner says, and uh, and there's absolutely no consultation with the hardworking people of Ontario who are making this province work. Well, I understand. Look, at when there's a change of government, we have to anticipate there's going to be changes. But there just seems to be a checklist here for this government to simply say, look, at everything that the past government did, we're going to tear it apart. Uh, we, and we really don't care what their applications are. We just want to tear it apart. And they've done this with uh, with some worker re- regulations that were put in place, as you said, about more standardized hours from week to week so people could actually plan their lives or plan their daycare or whatever else they had to do. That's been thrown out the window. Now you've got Bill 66, which further exacerbates that. This is a, this is a troubling time for people that are trying to make ends meet. Yes, it absolutely is. And just to add to what the government has already done, this government canceled the $15 minimum wage. We'll be lucky if the minimum wage hits $15 by 2025. And yet the Financial Accountability Office showed that despite the predictions of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce that said we're going to lose 185,000 jobs over two years when we increase the minimum wage, in fact, precisely the opposite occurred. Uh, employment went up, especially in those sectors where that, that are dominated by minimum wage employment. 
those sectors improved, and we've actually put on well over 150,000 jobs over the next, you know, over the subsequent two years, which ironically this government is trying to take credit for, but actually it was, uh, it was in, despite this government, because when the minimum wage went to $14 an hour, that's, uh, uh, that's when the Chamber of Commerce said that it would be cause catastrophic job loss, and nothing of the sort has taken place. No, as you, as you said, quite workers, the opposite. Exactly. It's obvious that when workers have more money in their pocket, they're able to spend in the local economy, and especially for workers at the lower end of the income scale, they don't put their money in offshore accounts. They spend it. They might pick up a bouquet of flowers for their loved one. They might go see a movie or go out to dinner, and that actually stimulates the economy. Because when all is said and done, what small business owners need most of all are customers. And when this government reduces workers' earning capacity and increases instability in their lives, it means workers have less money to spend in the local economy, and that hurts all of us, especially small businesses. Well, and again, because uh, here's the government that was listening to the Ontario Chamber and and the the fear-mongering that that was coming out of there, unsubstantiated. And and there there is viable statistic evidence here to show that 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 just isn't true, as you've already indicated that there were jobs created and uh, and of course I, I know when I talked to the minister about this a couple of months ago and that first report first came out he says yeah but those are really just part-time jobs well there's summer jobs because yeah, that that's part of it I mean you include those if, if, if you want to look at job losses so you have to include them for, for jobs that are also also being created but the other element here and this is the financial accountability officer okay this is not again the opposition parties that are saying this they said they made a bad move by going with this tax credit instead of the, raising the 15 or the minimum wage to 15 bucks it doesn't put Put enough money into the pockets of the people that really need it, and as you said, and I've I've been arguing this ever since the government proposed this, a tax credit is something to get once a year when they file their tax. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. It's a couple of extra bucks if you even get a refund, if you even qualify, because low-income families, some of them don't even pay, so they wouldn't qualify for the tax refund. But an extra pay of money uh, on an hourly wage, as you said, is money in your pocket. That means you can buy more groceries, you can pay the rent, you can do much more every two weeks when you get paid, not once a year. That's exactly it. And your point about the number of people who don't actually qualify for the tax cut is the other is is a really important piece of the story. It's a, a lot of people would be voted, you know, might think the tax cut is a good deal and it turns out that they already had income so low that they didn't they wound up not having to pay the taxes in the first place. So it for them it's a complete scam and for everyone else it's just a really lousy deal. And it and you're exactly right. The implications for the economy are substantial because it means that that ongoing stimulation is not present for our local economy. So you've nailed it. Well, and again, it comes down to cost of living, doesn't it? And affordability. And and how many other, you know, related arguments and discussions are we having these days about affordable housing, for instance, and, and people that can't pay their rent uh, and things of this nature? Well, if you give people a decent wage, and, and the basic income project was one of those projects as well. It's not just the minimum wage element that was coming into play here. And they've blown both of those things out of the water and said, no, we're not going to do this. It seems as if all the concern here is their bottom line, not, not necessarily the people that are struggling to get by here in Ontario. Yeah, that's an excellent point. And and sometimes I think they're not even concerned about their own bottom line because the fact that they eliminated, not only did they eliminate two paid sick days, which is a public health hazard, frankly, they also reinstated the requirement for workers to get doctor's notes for days off 
for sick days. And every medical practitioner, a series uh, um, the uh, medical uh, the doctors' organizations across the country have come out saying that this is a complete waste of tax money because essentially people are going to the doctor to get their doctor's notes. The doctor's notes, uh, you know, the doctors have to pay for it. They take, they congest the system and so forth. And it actually saves money to say, look, if you've got the flu, just stay home. That's what the recommended advice is. But uh, workers, A, will have to now forego their pay in order to stay home with the flu, and B, they still have to get a doctor's note. So it's just uh, so it's actually increasing expense, expenses for the public health care system and risking making more people sick and forcing them, too, to stay home or to get sick or to lose productivity because people are actually working while they're physically sick and unhealthy. So, you know, yes, it looks like a bottom-line question, but then it looks like it's not even a bottom-line question from their own perspective. Well, I, I dug, yeah, I dug those numbers up. I knew, I knew I had them somewhere on my desk here as you and I were talking. I was leafing through it as you were explaining that last point. Uh, here are the numbers. Uh, the uh, report, this is from the Accountability Office, the Financial Accountability Office. The report estimated that 1 million Ontarians will uh, get an average uh, lift credit of about $409 this year. Uh, but it's going to cost the government $418 million. So in other words, they're going into debt to do this. They're increasing the provincial debt to do this. Yeah. So, so much for money management. And to your point from a couple of minutes ago, only 38% of minimum wage earners in Ontario even received the tax credit. Totally. 38%. So that means this, uh, yeah, more than half, well more than half of the people uh, that are in these dire financial straits aren't even going to qualify for the tax credit. So who's that helping? It's well, frankly, nobody. It, it they really people have been sold a bill of goods, and people didn't vote for this. Lots of ordinary people voted for Doug Ford because they really thought he was going to be the champion of the little guy. That's what he campaigned on. And what people are finding now is that he doesn't care about the little guy whatsoever. It's just the business bottom line. That really seems to be it. And and frankly, the more that they create deficits provincially, the more pressure there is on privatizing our public services and selling them off to the corporate interest once again. So in some ways, it's a, it's a complete circle. Every single thing they do seems to be in the interest of business and corporations, but not in the interest of ordinary people. Well, it's it's very frustrating exercise, and especially when, and I understand every government's going to give their spin and whatever policy it's going to be, and you know it's up to each individual whether or not they want to buy into it or not. But I mean, all I'm asking before you make that determination is do some homework, do some research. Don't just take what they're telling you at face value and say, well, I guess that's the way it is. Uh, because uh, the, when you get a report from somebody like the Financial Accountability Office, uh, that's supposed to be oversight on the government. doesn't matter who's in office of the government. That's what their job is, is to look, go over the books, do the math, and make a determination as to whether or not what they're saying is true or not. And basically, what Mr. Weltman is saying here is that, look, at this is, this is bogus. It's not going to help most people. It's not going to help even the majority of, of people that are on minimum wage. And it's going to cost you and me more money because it's adding to the provincial debt. So tell me why, and, and, and in heaven's name, they try to pass this off as sound financial policy. Yeah, no, I agree 100% with you. And the worst part about all of this is that if you actually do a survey of small business owners, you know, the, the not all of the lobby groups that speak for small business owners actually represent their interests. Because if you look at public opinion surveys of small businesses, uh, oh, well over 60% of them support at least a $15 minimum wage. And that's because a lot of small businesses can't cope with the constant turnover that comes along with low wage and unstable work. So they already pay people more than the minimum wage. And that's how they retain their people. It's how they, you know, their staff are their ambassadors for their small business. 
So that's why it makes perfect sense that so many small business owners actually support this. It's it's the big corporations with 500 or more employees that rely most heavily on minimum wage employment, and they're the the corporations that can handle the turnover. So the irony about all of this is that ostensibly it's supposed to help the workers and help small business, but actually it winds up rewarding the worst employers uh, in the business. And that's just a race to the bottom, and it's completely unfair for all those decent work employees that are out there that already pay a decent wage, that provide the paid sick days. Why should they have to compete? with these fly-by-night operations who, you know, the big corporations or other, you know, sketchy business models, it really is going to be a race to the bottom in this province. And, uh, and, and those honest, decent, decent work employers are the ones getting the shaft in all of this. And if I were them, I'd be outraged. Well, it's uh, going to have an impact on their bottom lines. It's going to have an impact in their wallets, too. And uh, as you say, uh, without the, this increase to the minimum wage, which they've frozen, of course, until 2020, when they said they'll look at it again, that doesn't mean they're going to put in place it then. So we don't know what's going to happen to that situation. But employers well, employers are going to continue to see massive turnover, people calling in sick, uh, people saying, I can't make it into the shift today because they get stuck or have to have a second job and they can't get from point A to point B. It's I understand that the, the pressures that small businesses are feeling right now, But they have to look at long-term solutions, and this is actually, I I think, and I think most economists think, is part of that long-term solution. Absolutely. And as I say, the the vast majority of small business owners actually support at least a $15 minimum wage, and some, a significant portion of those think it should be even higher than 15 because they're already paying decently, and that's in order to retain their staff. So that's the that's the real issue. And just on the minimum wage, quote unquote, uh, increasing in 2020, the the only thing the government is committed to doing is increasing it by or adjusting it. I shouldn't even say increasing, but adjusting it by the rate of inflation. So that means if the $14 minimum wage is adjusted starting in 2020, we'll be lucky with the you know we'll be lucky if the minimum wage reaches. Fifteen dollars by twenty twenty five. It could, if inflation stays under two percent, it could be twenty 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 six or twenty twenty seven. And by that time, a fifteen dollar minimum wage is going to be so far below the poverty line, it's going to be meaningless again. So this is the problem with the government, and it's it's very short sighted because two thirds of our economy is based on what they call domestic demand, and that's people's ability to buy goods and services in their communities. And if we undercut that pillar, we're going to be in real trouble, I think, in the years ahead. Pam Fresh uh, from Ontario Fighting for 15 campaign. Pam, thanks so much for the great work that you're doing, and thanks for the time today. And thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. Okay, we'll stay in touch. Uh, Pam, thanks again. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Families are reacting to the announcement yesterday that the provincial government will not consult parents of children with autism as of May 1st. This day came the day after some new changes have been made. Uh, they keep trying to do something with this. We've had Lisa McLeod, the uh, community services minister, on this program trying to explain this. Uh, and uh, I continually ask her, why can't you not just do a needs-based assessment here and give people the money that they deserve and that they earn and they need rather than a one-size-fits-all? Uh, there's an awful lot of frustrated parents around here right now, and I want to talk with one of them right now. Bruce McIntosh is actually a former PC staffer who uh, resigned from his job because of the uh, the policies that the government was going to move forward on. Uh, he is also, of course, the father of uh, autistic without just children as well, and uh, always a very strong spokesperson for the the rest of the group here. Bruce, thank you so much for the time. It's great to talk with you again today. Always is. Good morning, Bill. Let's uh, talk a little bit about what the government's doing moving forward here. Uh, they they keep saying they're going to consult. They keep saying that they're going to listen to what the parents have to say. Uh, I'm I'm talking to an awful lot of frustrated parents these days, Bruce. Yeah. Well. <laughs> 
there is talk of consultation. We're waiting on the action. Um, and frankly, uh, this is something that should have begun last summer. Uh, we would not find ourselves in the in the mess that we're in. But, uh, you know, the minister has, there's been a big change in the tone, uh, is what I have noticed over the last couple of weeks. And it makes me cautiously hopeful that, uh, that things are going to get a turnaround. Now, what wasn't in yesterday's announcement was uh, a commitment to change the the, um, the age six uh, drop in funding, and that's a that's a huge drop, Bill. Like seventy five percent. Yeah, it, it just goes down without. And we've had this discussion before. You'll recall we've had this twice with the Liberals that a birthday doesn't ch- change a child's need. Um, so that's that's still out there and, and needs to be fixed but at least now there's um there's an option there's a there's a possibility that there'll be some meaningful consultation i hope that it doesn't drag on for too long i hope that it doesn't uh i hope it gets off to a quick start uh but you know she's uh, she's opened the door to it and I hope it. Uh, I hope it comes together. Well, you're right. I mean, they they have maybe been a little more open minded. Now we don't know where this is going to take us. But I mean, you know, when you look at what happened, the first time you and I talked about this some weeks ago, as you recall, I had the minister on right after you, yeah, uh, and and asked her some rather pointed questions about the policy, and she, I guess, in her frustration, said, "Well, where am I supposed to get the money from?" And I said, "You're the government. You decide where the money's going to go." She said, "Well, there's no more money." Well, of course, two days later, ten days later, of course, there's more money all of a sudden because of the pushback from the public. Uh, so if, if we're looking for a silver lining in this, I'm not so sure it's silver yet, uh, but they did listen uh, to, to a number of, of parent groups and probably uh, to the community at large, I think. They just said, look, this is just not going to work. Well, and, you know, the listening, we've, we've had to yell pretty loud. You know, we had uh, 12 or 1,300 people on the front lawn at Queen's Park uh, a month ago, and that's something that the premier said that he wouldn't have. So uh, you know, we've had to we've had to go to more than a little bit of trouble to get our voices heard. Um, I guess we've been somewhat successful. Uh, you know, we have to keep the pressure on though, because this if this uh, turns out to just be a diversion uh, to say, oh well, we're going to consult, and then nothing turns out any different at the end of the process then we'll just have found ourselves wasting a few months. I don't want that to happen. We have always said, we have said to the last government, we have said to this government, we are more than happy to work with you um, to, to overcome whatever uh, problems you may have. Uh, parents have solutions. We've, uh, the OAC has, has published a roadmap that we think is fiscally responsible, is going to respect the budget, um, and, and it's going to get us where we need to go. Uh, I hope the government will take a good look at that. I hope they'll involve us in the, in the consultations. Um, for, she's spoken of this, uh, this expert panel. I sat on one for the last government. I'd be more than happy to, uh, to help out this time. Um, it's, it's right now, the signal is positive, but it's wait and see. You know, we've heard the talk. We need to see the walk.
Well, that, I mean, I listen. I can understand people with a certain level of skepticism on this too, Bruce, because uh, governments have this propensity, of course, to try to make good news announcements, and they put their spin on this. And you may recall, just after the initial pushback about the this policy, uh, the government, and we because we talked about the idea of the impact it was going to have on boards of education, and they said, "Well, no, no, there's going to be funding for first year students into these classes," uh, and everybody said, "Well, well, that's great. That's already in place." I mean, whether you have an autistic child or not, students that transfer to new schools, that, that funding is given to the board anyway. They topped it up by a couple of bucks. That's about it. So, I mean, it wasn't really a good news situation. It was kind of you know, pushing the dust off an old program and saying this is going to help. I'm still hearing from boards of education, though, that, that are very, very concerned about the financial impact this is going to have and the quality of education they're going to be able to offer a lot of these kids. Well, it's, it, it is already having an impact. Uh, Thames Valley District School Board issued uh, layoff notices to uh, some of their education assistants uh, just, just this week. So we've, we, are, we are seeing the result of some of these policies, and it doesn't bode well for our kids. You know, the extension that the minister said uh, families would get an, an extra six months uh, under the current uh, arrangement um well that's just postponing the inevitable until fall um you know there's there's got to be a change not just a delay in in the effect there she's talking about next panel who what who should be at the table bruce i mean you've been there done that for the longest time right now i mean I, they you know they, they should be on the phone to you and say look you got to help us coordinate this thing and i i do hope that this does not become a partisan issue. I mean, because this is not about politics. This is about the kids, and this is about the families that are, are dealing with this. And you've talked to them, Bruce, over the years. I mean, there are families that have had to sell their homes to be able to pay for the, the, the therapy that their children have to have in situations like that. And that's, that's not supposed to happen in a place like Ontario. That is absolutely not acceptable. We, we, that was what grabbed me when the Liberals made the last announcement. I, meant to, I went to a... Um, a news conference that was hosted by Monique Taylor, and there was uh, there was a parent there who said who, she described exactly what you've talked about: remortgaging the house, uh, downsizing, moving into a, a, a family of four into a two-bedroom apartment. Um, and when I heard her speak, she was using words that I had used when we had done battle with the McGinty government. Uh, 12 years before, uh, you know, my, my wife and I, we, we, mort- we remortgaged twice to, to, to get help for my boy. And it worked, Bill. I mean, this is, this is the thing that, I, that governments seem to under- not to understand when they take the short-term view of the money that needs to be spent now. My son wasn't speaking when he was six years old. Right now he's 19, and his part-time job is calling play-by-play for a junior A hockey team. That's great. I mean, we got him to talk, and now we can't shut him <laughs> up. But, but this therapy is, it literally is life-changing. You know, I don't know where that young man would be had it not been for intensive ABA when he needed it. And, and he was at the moderate to severe end of the uh, of the range uh it wasn't cheap it wasn't cheap for our family and when we finally got government funding it wasn't cheap for them however i i honestly believe my son's going to have a full-time job 
He's going to be a taxpayer. I have every confidence in him because I see how hard he works. Um, that's that's where the payoff is. This is an investment. This isn't just a, a cost to be born. This this improves lives and changes futures. So the needs based thing, it's it's got to happen and it's got to happen soon. And, and I, I've told the story to our listeners, but just to remind them, a couple, a couple of years ago, I was doing, a, I was emceeing a fundraiser here in town for one of the great organizations here that try to help out these families. And I, I met a young man who was just graduating from McMaster, who was on the spectrum, and he went through this therapy. He told me when he was younger, and here he is graduating from university, and he says, "I'm proof positive that if these kids can be exposed to this, if they can get this kind of therapy, it can put them on the right track. It can it can be the difference really between uh, a successful life like this or a life of frustration for the child and for the families." Uh, and I actually brought him onto the show a couple of days later to tell his story because it's, it's such a remarkable story. But that doesn't happen without the therapy. That's right. Absolutely right. They've got to get it. They've got to get it promptly. I mean, we've, we've had a problem with this since the inception of the program 20 years ago, um, that the wait lists have been a significant problem. Um, the Liberals did not do anything about it for probably about 10 years there. It just, it just sat. And then we had the crisis three years ago that, you know, things really came to a head. The waitlist did begin to move, um, but you know when the when the minister says that this program is, is was not working, that's that's really not a fair evaluation of something that had been in place for only thirteen months, knowing that kids are typically in therapy for three years. Um, so it, it, I don't think it had a fair chance to begin with. I mean, we've already seen that some of the some of the claims about the waitlist weren't true that. You know, there was an instruction given to pause intake last summer. Um, you know, the opposition called it a freeze. The government called it a pause. Uh, it comes to the same thing. New, yeah. new kids weren't being taken into the program, so the wait list appeared to be static. Um, but look, you know, I, I have to let bygones be bygones in... The minister is saying that she's going to move forward with this. I intend to take her at her word. I do also intend to keep her accountable to her word, and I am more than happy to help out. Um, it's it's a change from where we were uh, when she made the first announcement on Feb 6. So maybe, maybe, I really want it to work. Look, at, and even if you take the minister's words at face value that the program wasn't working, and I, I agree with you, I don't think there was enough time for an assessment, but, but even uh, in the long term, I mean, there were a whole lot of problems with the, the previous government in the way that they handled this issue. Fact of the matter is, is this government owns it now. And, and, and at some point, stop looking in the rearview mirror and saying, well, it's their fault, it's their fault. How are you going to fix it? And, and yeah. the, you know, what they presented so far just is not sufficient. And, and as you told us every time we've talked about this, Bruce, and I've talked with other parents about this, you're not asking for more money. You're asking for the proper allocation of, of money for this program. There are people right now uh, under the existing program that Lisa McLeod has announced here that are going to be getting $20,000 annually for therapy that don't need it. Because where they are on the spectrum, there are others that are going to get $20,000 that need about $80,000. That's, that's got to be fixed. Absolutely. Listen, the, the the very notion, okay, and trigger alert for anybody listening. I'm going to say a couple of things that are going to be very difficult to hear. Some of our kids are self-injurious. 
they are they are aggressive toward others. I, I won't get into what fecal smearing really means. Those are the high needs kids. Now that is about one in six, roughly. That's what the what the uh, what the experts will tell you is the breakout. At the at the lower needs end of the spectrum, that's about half the kids that are on that wait list. And when I quote this, this is this is government data that was given to the advisory panel that I sat on under the Liberals. So the Conservatives have this same information. To be giving the same amount of money to one of those kids at the low needs end as the high needs end is. I can't find a word that puts stupid big enough. There are $20,000 is more than the low needs kids need, many of them, and 20 grand does not come close to what kids at the high end need. And that should have been apparent on the starting line because the data was there. So I, I, I just, I, I, I cannot understand how this got chosen as, as the original rollout. I just, it, it defies explanation. Well, there seems to be, as you mentioned, Bruce, a sliver of a chance here because they do say they want to listen to parents about this, and, and hopefully they're true to their word, and they are going to listen. There's one thing, hearing is one thing, listening is something else. And uh, there are stories that need to be told here. You put your finger on it. Well, as I say, you know, we're, we are going to be there well, you know, I think we may not be quite as aggressive as we've been over the last month and a half, but we're, we are going to be watching, and we are not going to be patient, because this is something that should have begun last summer in a meaningful way. Uh, and here we are now in April, and it's being talked about with a start sometime soon. So, uh, you know, please, Minister, put your foot on the gas. Bruce, we'll stay in touch as this develops, and uh, continue good luck with this. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. Take care. That's uh, Bruce McIntosh, of course, uh, working diligently to uh, try to shed some light on this uh, policy for the Ontario government. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.